And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Podcast 30, the podcast of March. Uncle Frank, what do we have? Well, Jimmy, we have some odd foreign language covers of Beatles songs and a Conan the Barbarian audio drama. We also have another H.P. Lovecraft story, read by Roddy McDowell, and March's edition of the Weird and Gamey News. Then we have a tribute to the fantastic Anthony Newley, and some other steps, of course. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started, this time with a little madness. Celibate church, the miracle of TV's mirror. Dad's old fashioned, Judeo Christian, Greco Roman, conscience Skinnerism, root, radical, nightmare seer, truth, science, feeling, deed. Is so inscribed in the book of the teddy bear's gold disc. To know, know, know him, amen, is to love, love, love him again. And I do, and I 
do There you fly is away Epistemology Here's those Beatles covers we promised you earlier. The first is by Asage, a group of South African and Nigerian expatriates, with their cover of Hey Jude, sung in the Hosa language. Next we have Help, sung mostly off-key by the French-Canadian artist Meme Saint-Ongue. And finally, there's Within You, Without You, sung by the great Anthony Newley, who only seems to be singing in a foreign language.
Oui. Alors, Mme Saint-Tron, les voix sont prêtes, alors euh, on commence, c'est ça Oui, oui, c'est reason for the classic quality of the Beatles' music is that they were constantly experimenting, striving for change. Each song brought new growth, new meaning.
yourself and no one else can make you change And to see you're really only very small And life goes on within you and without you Pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. From the classic Scholastic book, Strange But True, Another Tale of the Bazaar. Sous le ciel de Paris s'envole une chanson Elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon Le ciel de Paris marche des amoureux Leur bonheur se construit sur un air fait pour eux One of the strangest of all detective cases took place on a beach in France in 1888. It began the day a businessman named André Monet and his wife arrived at the small French seaside town of Saint-Adresse. Late that night, Monet left his hotel to take a swim before going to bed. He never returned. 
Early the next morning, a boy discovered him lying on the beach, dead with a bullet wound. The French National Police sent Detective Robert Ledru to investigate. Ledru was selected to go to the scene of the crime because of his reputation. He was considered brilliant. Not only was he the youngest detective on the police force, he was easily the most successful at solving mysteries. It was claims that he could sniff a used but empty glass and identify the drink, and he could look at a footprint and describe the person who had made it. His superiors believed him to be a wizard at swiftly finding and reading clues. The truth was something else. Robert Ledru was neither swift nor brilliant. He was patient and thorough. Far from solving mysteries at a glance, he worked slowly and carefully. He spent hours and even days at a scene of a crime, going over every foot of the ground. He scarcely slept until he checked out every clue, every alibi, every suspect. By dogged determination, he built a dazzling record. That record was his lifeblood, and he did everything to further it. For example, he never admitted that he had worked around the clock tracing the owner of a button. In his report, he wrote only that he had deduced who the owner was. To his superiors, he seemed the ideal man to send to the beach at Andresse. And there was no other man but Robert Ledru who could have solved the murder of André Monet. But when the great detective arrived at St. Andresse, he could uncover no leads. The murdered man had no known enemies. He had not been robbed. His only heir was his wife, and she had waited for him at the hotel lobby in view of the night clerk until 2.30 a.m. Since the coroner had fixed the time of death at no later than 2 a.m., she was cleared. Ledru was making no progress. Worse, the many nights during which he had passed up sleeping in order to work on his cases were catching up with him. Before he could rest, though, there was this new murder to solve. Night fell, and still his efforts led him no closer to the killer. He resorted to his tried and tested tools, patience and painstaking thoroughness. He marked a huge circle around the spot where the body had lain. Lantern in hand, he re-examined every inch of the sand in and around the circle. Near midnight he found the clue, a footprint. It told him the identity of the murderer. The guilty man was someone that he had known all his life. The struggle within Ledru was soul-wrenching. Should he turn in the murderer in? Duty at last overcame personal objection. Robert Ledru entered the St. Adresse police station. He solved the case, he announced, and he laid upon the desk a plaster cast of a footprint. It was the left foot. The footprint belonged to the murderer, the detective asserted. He had sneaked up behind his victim in his bare feet. Please observe that the first joint of the big toe is missing. Then he stooped and took his own shoe off. Gentlemen, I am the murderer. He had lost the first joint of the big toe on his left foot while a boy. Ledru was placed under arrest and eventually brought to trial. Respected doctors testified in his defense. Due to a rare mental condition, they stated, Robert Ledru was dangerous only at night. During the day, he was perfectly sane. 
The words of the doctors, plus a masterly plea by his lawyer, saved Ledru from execution. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. The sentence was carried out only in the hours between sunset and sunrise. During the daylight, he was set free to go wherever he chose. Robert LeDrew died in his cell in 1939. For 51 years, he served his unique sentence, walking the streets during the day and returning at night to be locked up. Dans un amour, de la fierté, pouvoir se taire la dignité, savoir partir au bon moment, Cacher son mal en souriant Et je me disais en marchant Que j'avais su partir à temps Si mon cœur est désespéré Il ne m'aura pas vu pleurer Un refrain courait dans la rue Bousculant les passants dans la cohue d'un petit air engageant était sur son passage il s'arrêta devant moi et me disait tout sage tu es triste mon dieu pourquoi viens et rentre dans ma chanson il y a de beaux garçons Jette ton chagrin dans le ruisseau Et tourne-lui le dos Il faut que ton plaît soit gai Alors parlons du mois de mai Des arbres en robe de lilas Et de l'été qui pousse en tas Il y a des violettes, un balcon Un vieux poète chante une chanson Ma robe est tachée de soleil Je le garde pour mes rêves Un refrain pourrait dans la rue Bousculant les parfums Qui se profilaient dans la cohue Les petits airs engageants Les gens sur son
It's a very strange world And I thank you, Master Jack Good evening, everyone, again. This is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. It's time now for the weird and gamey news. Just a little taste of what's out there this month. It's March, which means it's Women's History Month. But it's also National Craftsman Month and Peanut and Noodle Month. Not to mention Cheerleading Safety Month and Umbrella Month. And just like there are no lack of designations for March, there's also no lack of special days. There is, of course, the Ides of March and St. Patrick's Day, and of course, Pie Day, which we're celebrating right now with a nice slice of pie. Thank you again, Jimmy Sweets. No problem. But there are many others. March 1st, for example, which was National Pig Day, which recognizes and gives thanks to the domestic pig. March 11th was Johnny Appleseed Day, commemorating John Chapman, an early pioneer who sold and planted apple trees on his way west. And wore a pot for a hat, so they say. On March 23rd will be the Near Miss Day, a day of remembrance of the asteroid the size of a mountain that came as close as 500,000 miles back in 1989. It's also Melba Toast Day on the 23rd, and March 28th brings us something on a stick day. And of course, on the 29th, it's Smoke and Mirrors Day. March is also known for its great celebration. James, what's one of them? Well, between the 15th and the 19th of March is Los Fios Day in Valencia, Spain. That's the festival where intricate sculptures, some as big as 30 meters tall, are paraded through the streets. And all over the city, the citizens dress up in traditional garb and dance to live music while pyrotechnics explode at intervals. On the last day, all the sculptures are burned in a bonfire so big that the nearby houses must be continually doused with water. Fascinating. On the first Friday of March, in the town of Catamaco, Mexico, is the celebration of Noche de Brujas, or Night of the Witches. Catamaco is the center of Mexico's witchcraft and witch doctor trade, and every year hundreds of shaman, witches, and healers from all over Mexico attend. They perform on that night a mass cleansing ceremony to rid a year's worth of negative energy. Tourists can also get in on this purge, along with food, drink, and of course souvenirs. Then there's the Holi Festival of Northern India and Nepal. It's the Festival of Colors and takes place during the three days surrounding March's full moon. On the last day of the festival, kids and adults alike go out into the streets and throw colorful powder at each other. They also throw tinted water balloons, buckets of colored water, and shoot colored liquid from syringes. Watch out, tourists are particularly targeted. Ah. And then there's Stark Beer Site, or the Strong Beer Festival. It takes place in Munich two weeks around St. Joseph's Day, which is March 19th. Known as the fifth season, it's a celebration entirely of strong beer, the only time it's available in Munich. Brewers bring out their most lethal amber ales, which have alcohol contents of above 7%. The first keg of the festival is tapped at the Pollinier Keller establishment. Later, there are stone lifting contests in the Lohenbrauch Keller Beer Hall. 
And those are just a few of the celebrations and festivals in March, so you should seek out the rest and enjoy. And now it's time for reports from a strange world. Jimmy, what's our first one? Well, Uncle Frank, to start with, we have some night sky sightings. A huge sphere was seen hovering over Mudgee, Australia on March 11th, and a triangle-shaped craft was filmed in the starlight sky above Oklahoma. Then weird columns of light were observed over Busan, Korea, over a three-night period. Hundreds of citizens complained about the strange illumination. Wow, that's bizarre. Well, here's still another surprise that appeared in the clouds above a shopping center in Kitwe, Zambia. This happened last week. It came in the form of a dark substance which looked like a human figure in the sky. Witnesses said that it appeared to be about 100 meters long and remained for about a half hour. Some said it appeared to be looking down at the people below. Fascinating. Now we have a story out of Randolph, Massachusetts. A bizarre scene of a group of wild turkeys walking in a circle around a dead cat was caught on video by a Massachusetts man who perhaps described it best, an attempt to give the feline its tenth life. Jonathan Davis came across the foul play in the Boston suburb of Randolph Thursday. He posted a video on Twitter that he says was viewed a half a million times by the late afternoon. The recording shows what appears to be 17 turkeys, circling the cat. Dave Scarpati is a wildlife biologist at the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. He suspects the turkeys were sizing up the threat of the cat and had no intention of making a meal out of it. He says the turkeys prefer bird seed and vegetation. I think the claim was they were trying to bring the cat back to life. I think it's still a possibility. I think so, too. And now we have our final story, and that's a story about Blake Puckett, a junior from the University of Arkansas, who went the extra mile for Sergeant Keith McKay of the University Central Police Department. Blake was pulled over for a taillight infraction, and to prove that he was not under the influence, he decided to pull out his juggling pins and put on a show to prove his sobriety. This not only proved his sobriety, but got an applause from the said sergeant. The next day, during interviews, he also did a magic trick for the sergeant, although unfortunately, it was just sponge balls. Oh man, come on. And now this is Uncle Frank. And Jimmy Sweets. Signing off from a strange world. You're a very strange man and I thank you, Master Jack. You're a very strange man and I thank you, Master Jack. You're a very strange man, aren't you, Master Jack? In all times and all lands, waterfronts are ever the same. White-sailed ships with many flags lying at anchor, lapped by cold, dark waves, while mangy, sharp-toothed wharf rats prowl the shadows, ever watchful for an unguarded rope along which they can crawl aboard a ship in search of birth and barley. But there are worse vermin abroad this night in the seaport of Cordava, capital of proud Zingara. <laughs> oh, 
Raucous noise and coarse laughter fill the waterfront tavern they call the Silver Stallion. For Cordava is a place where Zingarans, Argosians, Stygians, Kothians all mingle, drinking and singing songs and shouting out lies at the top of their voices. But this night, suddenly one lusty voice rings out louder than all the rest. What does a man have to do to get a drink in this filth-infested place? Marry a barmaid? Here's your ale, Outlander. It's about time. I've got more bravos in here tonight to wait on than just you, you know. <laughs> but none that's got more money on him, I'll wager. I just sold a golden chalice I came to town with and spent the money on these new clothes. What do you think of them, wench? Oh, they're just lovely. Yellow silk breeches, pink brocaded shirt, and that blue sash around your waist. Ha <laughs> ha, the name of Mitra. Who sold you all this gear? Why, a merchant over on the Avenue of Gargoyles. He, he swore it was the latest fashion among the gentlemen of the city. Ha <laughs> ha, the latest fashion among fops and fools, he should have said. You're too much of a real man to wear just fancy garb. You mean I wasted my money? You might as well have thrown it off the wharves into the sea. Well, then by crumb. What are you doing? Getting rid of these trousers. What else? There. I'd rather walk around in just my loincloth than have a pretty wench like you think me a fop and laugh at me. Well, you certainly don't look like a dandy now. Why don't you drink your drink and we can talk? Skyros, have you been listening to what that big barbarian oaf's been saying? Aye. Gather round, boys. Those clothes may not suit him, but there's still those on Rich Man's Hill that'd pay plenty for them. And that's in addition to what we'll get from the captain. Right. So you know what to do, lads. Aye, we do. Spread out and get close to him, and then we'll take him from behind. He'll never know what hit him. So why don't you just forget about the merchant who sold you those rags and, and we'll go for a stroll? I won't forget. Come morning, I'll seek him out and stuff a whole lot down his gnarled throat. Just let me get this accursed buttonless thing off my head. Ooh! Oh, what are you doing? We've been struck! Now, while he's stunned, spring the trap door. He'll let the captain have him now if he cares to fish him out. He'll fish him out, all right. Now gather up those silken garments, lads. We'll find some rich fool to buy them come tomorrow. What? Where am I? Gotta get up. I gotta... What the devil? Chains. I'm in chains. My ankles, my wrists. I'm chained to this wooden bench on some kind of a ship. But where? Ooh. Stop talking, oarsman. We brought you aboard to row, not to yap. Oarsman? Then I've been... Abducted I. We get half our lads below through that trap door in the Silver Stallion. Though they usually aren't as brawny as you, of course. You'll row a fine oar. But where are we bound, Deckmaster? Why do Argos, of course. But cheer up, dog. It's not so bad. This is an important ship. We're carrying a king's ransom. A real king's ransom. <laughs> it seems that the king of Zangara was careless and got himself captured by the king of Argos. And now Zangara's got to pay a pretty price to get him back. 
and we're the ship that's taking the ransom to Argos. <laughs> You're lucky to be an oarsman on such an important ship. I'm no oarsman. Keep your voice down, fool. Our captain's conferring forward with the king's own viceroy, and he won't want a slave's shouts bothering him. You'd call me a slave? I'll... And there's more where that came from. Now I've wasted time enough on you. Get below. You'll regret that. Right now. You tore the whole bench loose. No, keep away from me. Help! Help! Come ahead, you Zengaran dogs. I'll take you all on. Get him, lads. Get him, I say. Well done. That belaying pin took care of him. Ishtar, he's still not out. Hoist him up, lads. We'll let the captain decide what to do with him. I tell you, Esteba, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. You really have no choice any longer, my dear Captain Tubal. You're already involved in this scheme up to your neck. No, it's not too late. I could still take the ship to Argos, as I was supposed to. It's not too late to actually use what's stored below to ransom the king and become a hero instead of a traitor. And remain a ship's captain all your life, while I go back to being a king's mere viceroy, when we can both live like kings ourselves once we've sold the Thunderdust to the Stygians. Not likely, my friend. Thunderdust? How do you know it does what it's supposed to? Ah, yes. I forget, you've not seen it perform, have you? Well, that's why I had yonder fire trough installed here on the deck. Now look, do you see what I have in my hand? Some sort of black powder. Thunder dust, Captain Tuval. Watch what happens when I toss merely the smallest portion of that powder into the fire. So. Mitra. Impressive, huh? No one knows what makes it work. A wanderer brought it back from the east and the warlike Stygians will pay a good price for it. Small wonder they could terrify an army with it. Why, they could... All right, you. Step lively there. What's all this, Deckmaster? This new prisoner, Captain. He's a surly one. Tried to break loose. He'll start a mutiny if we put him in with the other oarsmen, sir. And throw him down in the ship's hold and be done with him. Yes, sir. Come along, you. In there with you. There. I guess that settles him. <laughs> Better see where I am. Kegs. <laughs> they must be filled with that so-called thunder dust that one dog tossed into the fire trough. I wasn't too close, but I could hear. Hmm. Dark in here. In a minute, I'll be able to... What was that? Something over there in the corner. Something moving. It... Crom. An ape. A huge white ape. I've heard of them. Man-killers. Must be down here to guard these kegs from Argosian spies. Circling. Nothing to fight it with. Nothing but this length of chain. Gotta wait for it to charge. If I can get this chain around its neck... Got, got him! Behind him! Chainer on his neck. Just a moment longer, a little tighter. Gotta hold out. Cut the... Didn't kill it. But it'll take a minute to catch its breath. Maybe. Go out there. I've slain your ape. 
And I'm going to scatter your precious thunder dust all over till it won't be good for anything. There. That ought to bring someone on the run. Now, if I can just pull the ape over to the door so that when they open it, they'll get a surprise. The beast's coming, too. They'd better hurry. Somebody unlocking the door. And just in time, too. Now, you dogs, now! All right, you! I don't know how you... I hope. The ape's heading up on deck. Now to search my deckmaster friend here. I thought he'd have a set of keys. First, I'll take care of these chains. Then... There. Ah, my hairy playmate has found some new friends. I think I'll go topside. And... But first... Yes, I'd better take along a keg of this so-called thunder dust. Might just come in. Esteba. In the name of heaven, that ape was your idea. Stop him! Now he's heading this way! Over here, behind the fire truck. He's frightened by fire. He won't come here. You see, my dear captain, we're safe as long as we keep the fire between us and the ape. Safe? Are you Zingaran? You! Aye, the man you tossed down in the hole with that killer ape. And look what I've got here. A, a keg of thunder dust! In the name of Mika, break down, you fool! You don't know what it can do! Oh, but I do, you cringing jackal. It will explode if it strikes the fire trough. And that's just what it's going to do now! No! Don't throw it! Oh. Oh, that powder was even more powerful than I thought. Tore a hole in the deck and blew men and ape away like leaves. Well, no great loss. The whole ship's caught fire now. Won't stay afloat for long. The oarsmen I freed have reached the longboats. But I can't get to them through the flames. The fire's getting closer, so... <sighs> Goodbye, old ship. But the king of Zingara... Break out of his prison himself like I did. No sign of the shore. Can't even tell which way it is. Well, might as well swim one way and see what happens. If I'm right, I'll reach the shore by morning. If I'm not, Crom take me, though. If I don't feel lucky tonight. That's right, it's that time again. 
We thought since we were bringing you Anthony Newley anyway, we might as well take this opportunity to place him where he belongs, among the other great ones in our Hall of Fame. Drum roll, please. Well, like we said, Anthony Newley. Born in 1931, he was acting by 16 and went on to appear in over 50 films and television shows, including our two favorites, X the Unknown and Dr. Doolittle. But that's just one of the facets of this man. He was a pop star with a dozen top 40 hits in the UK and 18 albums. He appeared on both the Broadway and London stages. And with partner Leslie Biscue, he wrote the musicals Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, The Roar of the Grease Paint and the Smell of the Crowd, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, to name a few. The team also wrote songs like What Kind of Fool Am I?, for Once in My Lifetime, Candyman, the theme from Goldfinger, and Feeling Good, popularized by Nina Simone, and many more. In later years, Newley became a cabaret performer and was always on talk shows and variety specials. Throughout all this, the man was an original, trying to do things in a new way, breaking boundaries, pushing frontiers. That could be seen in the different ways he sang, sometimes traditional, sometimes ballad, sometimes just phrase-talking, and other times almost unintelligible, but always interesting. Here's a tiny sample of the man, good old Anthony Newley, our newest inductee. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle, that's the way the money goes, pop goes the weasel. <laughs> yeah. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle, that's the way the money goes, pop goes the weasel Every night when I go out, the weasel's on the table Take a stick and knock it off, pop goes the weasel Up and down the city road, in and out of the eagle That's the way the money goes, pop goes the weasel Half a pound of twopenny rice, half a pound of treacle Mix it up and make it nice Pop goes the weasel You know, pop goes the weasel For years I've wondered what that meant And nobody seemed to know So I looked it up and the official explanation goes something like this Pop goes the weasel refers to the habit of London hatters long ago Popping or pawning their weasels or accessories On Saturday night to buy liquor Isn't that interesting? <laughs> up and down the city road In and out of the eagle that's the way the money goes, the pop goes the weasel. But you know, I've got a theory of my own about pop goes the weasel. It's much simpler. Why did the weasel go pop, go pop, pop, pop goes the weasel? Why did the weasel go pop? Cause they up the price of tuppenny rice to four pence. How did the pop get into the weasel? Weasel, pop goes the weasel. How did the pop get in there? Well, the weasel caught his beakle in the tree. <laughs> now, if you've got a weasel and you don't want him to pop, the next time you go shopping, don't to take him in the shop Two, three, four, half a pound of taverny rice Half a pound of treacle Now that is the way that the money goes And pop goes the weasel Every night when I go out The weasel's sitting on the table Now I take a stick and I knock it off 
pop goes the weasel Up and down the city road In and out of the eagle That's the way the money goes Pop goes the weasel All together now Half a pound of tabernacle rice Half a pound of treacle Now I mix it up and I make it nice Pop, pop, pop goes the weasel Pop, pop, pop goes the weasel Poppity, poppity, pop goes the weasel now Would you excuse me a moment? I'm just going to pop my weasel <laughs> It's raining It's pouring The old man's snoring A little sad in my head plate, mate A little grey coming through A little down in the mouth plate, mate Rain keeps falling, no one's calling I tell you straight, kid, I'm in a state Kid. I've got the moojis, the dreaded bluejis. La 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 And it doesn't help when you when you watch them floating by and those little mini skirts, little pink knees winking away, wild air lolloping about in the wind, and those mad earrings and the clown faces and that gear. They're hip-hugged and plastic-macked. They're goggled and helmeted, booted and spurred. Thank God I can control myself. A little dream in my heart place face. A little scene tucked away in my memory A little girl and me went case face Rain kept falling, she stopped calling Do you think she's lonely and thinks about me? I've got the moojis, the dreaded bluejis A little girl just walked by me, see a little smile in her eye Here we go again A little rise in my blood rate Mate It stopped raining Who's complaining Goodbye moojis Bye bye bluejis Oh, excuse me sweetheart uh, My friend and I are having an argument He says you're a fashion model I say you're a film star <laughs> And as there's a few couldn't I wanted to Oh, by the way, are you busy? I decoded you today. As you came off the computer, clean and clear, no interference, hardly any static, excellent woof, no tweet, the memory of you came rushing back. Purple smear lips on moon-faced girl, rainbow hair, your rosy confines, a universe of flashing stars and golden sunsets. You, a peacock sky of flashing light. Take a little breath and blow it out again, see it make a balloon. 
suddenly I see there in front of me Words are forming in that little capsule saying Darling, I love you Darling, please be true Won't you ever turn and read the message that is floating round about my ear Oh, take a little sigh and blow it out again See it hang on the breeze Suddenly it's there, floating on the air Look inside and you will see the heart that you have broken with your foolish pride I hope you're satisfied Once in a lifetime a man knows a moment One wonderful moment when fate takes his hand And this is the moment, my once in a lifetime When I can explore a new and exciting land For once in my lifetime I feel like a giant I saw like an eagle as though I had wings For this is the moment my destiny calls me And though it may be just once in my lifetime I'm gonna I'm gonna build a mountain Yeah, yeah From a little hill Yeah, yeah Build a mountain Yeah, yeah At least I hope I will Yeah, yeah Gonna build a mountain Gonna see it through Gonna build a mountain and a daydream Gonna make them both come true Gonna build a daydream From a little hope Gonna push that daydream Up a mountain slope Gonna build a daydream Gonna see it through Gonna build a mountain and a daydream Gonna make them both come true Gonna build a heaven From a little hell Gonna build a heaven And I know darn well If I build my mountain Mountain, heaven will be waiting there. Gonna build a mountain. Gonna build it high. I don't know how I'm gonna do. Only know I'm gonna try. What kind of fool who never fell in love? It seems that I'm the only one that I have been thinking of. What kind of man is this? An empty shell, a lonely cell in which an empty heart must dwell. What kind of clown am I? What do I know of life? Why can't I cast away this mask of play and live my life? Why can't I fall in love like any other man? But maybe then I'll know what kind of fool I am. What kind of lips are these? The lie of every kiss. The whispered empty words of love. That left me alone like this What kind of eyes are these That could not see What could be seen By everybody else but me What kind of eyes are these That could not see What could be seen By everybody else but me 
kind of clown am I? What do I know of life? Why can't I cast away this mask of play and live my life? Why can't I fall in love till I don't give a damn? And maybe then I'll know what kind of fool I tortured ears there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping and a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound it is not dream it is not i fear even madness for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts sinjin is a mangled corpse i alone know why and such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, Sinjin and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites were all ours in their time, but... Each new moon was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could help us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysmans were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which, even in my present fear, I mention with shame and timidity. That hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing, I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalogue even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place where, with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled a universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death the lines of red charnel things hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. 
Through these pipes came, at will, the odors our moods most craved. Sometimes the scent of pale, funereal lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, oh, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies, alternating with comely, lifelike bodies, perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes, and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting, bald pates of famous noblemen, and the fresh and radiantly golden heads of new-buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio, bound in tanned human skin, held certain unknown and unnameable drawings which it was rumoured Goya had perpetrated, but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed brass and woodwind, on which Sinjin and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemoniacal ghastliness, whilst, in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets, repose the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but we worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous, grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. Sinjin was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumor and legendary, the tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time, and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulcher. I can recall the scene in these final moments, the pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows, the grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass and crumbling slabs, the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivied church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death fires under the yews in a distant corner, 
the odors of mold, vegetation, and uh, less explicable things that mingle feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and, worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard the suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this selfsame spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved in the ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gently moaning night wind, and the strange, half-heard, directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much was left of the object, despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull, and its long, firm teeth, and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching winged hound, or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression of its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither Sinjin nor I could identify, and on the bottom, like a marker seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelt from the centuried grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it, but as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature which sane and balanced readers know, but we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon, at the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Leng in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure, supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave the last glance at the bleached and cavernied face of its owner and closed up the grave as we had found it. As we hastened from the abhorrent spot, 
the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint, distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background. But the autumn wind moaned, sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone and without servants, in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be a frequent fumbling in the night, not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large, opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it. And another time, we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination, which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned a strangely scented candle before it. We read much in Alhazred's Necronomicon about its properties, and about the relation of ghost souls to the object it symbolized, and were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September 24th, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying it St. John's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event and became as worried as I. It was the night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for, besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard, as if receding far away, a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our sense, we did not try to determine. We only realized, with the blackest of apprehensions, that the apparently disembodied chatter was, beyond a doubt, in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly, we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitement. But sometimes, it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess. And every night, 
that demoniac baying rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November 18th when St. John, walking home after dark from the dismal railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to pieces. His screams reached the house and I hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, the amulet, that damn thing. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demoniac sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim-lighted moor a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights, I heard the baying again, and before a week was over, felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled on Victoria Embankment, for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind, stronger than the night wind, rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent, sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was and why it had pursued me were questions still vague, but I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abysses of despair when, at an inn in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death 
beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' den, an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace. And those around had heard all night a faint, deep, insistent note as of a gigantic hound. So, at last I stood again in the unwholesome churchyard, where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows, and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered, frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivy church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither, unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. But, whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption. A lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth, until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed. For, crouched within that centuried coffin, Embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp ensanguined fangs, yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave Donic Bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade, I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my scream soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web-wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek, with my revolver, the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. And that just ought about do it. All right, Uncle Frank, I know you always have one more thing. What do we got? In March of 1933, Willis O'Brien's stop-motion extravaganza, King Kong, premiered, and the world was never the same. 
And so as we go out, we have a medley of Kong songs and a bit from Bob Newhart. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. See you next month. King Kong, you know the name of King Kong. You know the fame of King Kong. Ten times as big as a man. One day a boy too young to know the danger made a friend of this giant fearsome stranger. Testament. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Well, I was thinking about King Kong in the black and white films and reporters with flashing bones. And how they drugged him and they chained him and they stoned him from home. They tempted him with the one thing he loved. And they exploited the king for the novelty thing. When they finally stood up for himself, they sent out some planes and they shot his ass down. Snicker while the poor old boy fell It's a shame the way they made us out To be a joke where nobody laughs It's a shame to be seen as this novelty thing By some members of the cold-hearted press While I slept and I dreamt and I was flying back home and crossed paths with the ghost of King Kong. Lord, he's flying this way and I was flying that way. We both smiled because we're both going home. And we're both too tired to talk too much, but I shouted as he floated away. Where you're going, buddy, they won't hurt you no more. Really wasn't much more to say. It's a shame the way the main sound to be a joke where nobody laughs. It's a shame to be seen as this novelty thing by some members of the cold on the press. Hello, Mr. Mr. Nelson. Yes, this this is uh, Sam Hennessy, the, uh, the 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 new guard. Yeah, sir, I you know I hate to bother you at home like this on on my first night, but uh, <coughs> see, so, uh, something's come up, sir, and it, it's not it's not covered in in the guard's manual. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked in the index. Yeah, yes, sir. It, I, I looked under an authorized personnel and uh, and uh, people without passes and and apes and apes toes, uh, apes and apes toes. Yes, sir. Uh, there there's an ape's toe uh, sticking through the window, sir. Well, uh, see uh, see this isn't your standard ape, sir. I mean. Uh, he's between uh, 18 and 19 stories high, uh, d uh, d depending on, on whether there's a 13th floor or not. Uh, uh, uh. Well, uh, sir, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's a rule against, uh, against apes shaking the building. There, there, there is, yes. So I, I, I yelled at his feet, you know, I said... Uh, I said, uh, a shoe ape, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to leave, sir. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I know how you like the new men to, to think on their feet, sir. So um, I, I went to the, the broom class, and I, I got out a broom uh, without uh, you know, signing out a requisition on it. <laughs> I, yeah, I will tomorrow, yes, sir. <laughs> and, and I started hitting him on the toes with it, you, you see? But uh, it didn't seem to bother him too much. See, uh, there are these planes, sir, and they're, they're flying around them, and, and they're shooting at them, you know. And 
they only seemed to be bothering him a little bit, so, so I figured I wasn't doing too, too much good uh, with, with, with a broom. Did, did I try swatting him in the, in, in the face with it? Well, I, I, um, I was going to take the elevator up to his head, sir. <laughs> See, but uh, my, my jurisdiction only extends to his navel. You, do, you, don't, you don't care what I do, just, just get the ape off the building. This, uh, this, this may complicate things a little. Uh, he's, uh, he's carrying a woman in his hand, sir. I, no, I, I don't think she works in the building, no, sir. Well, see, as he, as he passed by my floor, uh, she had this kind of negligee on, you know? So I, I doubt very much if she, if she was one of the cleaning women, you, you know, you know? Well, well, sir, the first thing I did, I, I filled out a report on it. Well, I, no, I, I don't want to give the building a bad name either, sir, you know, but... Well, I doubt very much if we can cover it up, sir, you know? Well, you know, the, the planes are shooting at them, you know, and... Uh, I mean, people are, are going to come to work tomorrow morning, and, and some of them are going to notice the ape in the street, you know, and... <laughs> and, uh, and, and the broken window, you know, and they'll start putting two and two together. You... I, I think we're safe on that score, sir. I, I, doubt, I doubt very much if he signed the book downstairs. Uh, uh, you don't, you don't care what I do, just, just get the ape off the building. Well, I, I came up with one idea, sir, uh, but I'm not supposed to leave my post. Well, I, I thought maybe I could smear the Chrysler building with, with bananas. <laughs> they shot him down. They shot him down. They thought he was a monster. But he was the king. They came to his island and they brought her with them. They wanted to get his picture, but they were surprised by his enormous size. And when he saw the woman, he took her without question. Because after all, he was a king, and he loved the woman, he loved the way she looked, but she wouldn't stop her screaming. But he loved the woman, and he fought a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It was a bloody battle, but he fought it for his woman. And he climbed up a mountain, and he looked around some kind of forest with all those dinosaurs. And he stripped his woman. He stripped her bare. But there was a pterodactyl there, and then a hero came and took his woman, and they fell off the mountain, 
into some water and then later he came looking for his woman but they were waiting and they threw a bomb and they tied him and they took him across the ocean and they chained him and put him in a show but when he saw his woman he broke loose and everyone fled in terror and he was looking for her and he overturned the train he was looking in the streets and then he found her in her apartment and he climbed up the empire state building it was like a phallic symbol and he took his woman to the top of that towering temple and he climbed up and he looked around some kind of city with all those skyscrapers and all the cars just him and his screaming woman they were finally alone he loved his woman you could see it in his eyes his great big eyes he loved his woman from the moment he saw her he was all choked up inside but when the airplanes came he was soon to die but he hung on long enough to set his woman down and make sure she was safe and as the bullets pierced he looked at her so sincere before he fell because he loved his woman they shot him down they shot him down they thought he was a monster but he was a king who killed the monkey who killed the monkey twas beauty that killed the beast and Willis O'Brien died a tragic death there wasn't much that he had left and Ray Harryhausen said that when Willis died that's when the king was really dead they shot him down they shot him down they thought he was a monster but he was a king but he was a king but he was the king but he was the king